Welcome to a new episode of the Life Science Get Together podcast. The topic of today's talk is the secrets of life science investments, especially with a focus on what is a venture fund. Back in the 90s, when I attended a commercial school, investments were basically either one of two options. One option was to put money in a savings account, which basically was uh, the only thing that uh, pupils in school could do. And the second option was um, buying companies on a large scale, like Jack Welch did with GE. In an interview a few years ago, he said that in his big days, they acquired more than 200 companies in one year. Since then, since the 90s, the landscape changed tremendously. And the first time I heard about life science investments and venture funds was in 2006. It took me a couple of years to figure out what uh, venture funds really do and how investments in life science work. So I thought it's a good idea to invite um, one of the Best investors we have in the LSG2G network, Walter Stockinger from Hardian Ventures. Walter, welcome to the show. Hello, Christian. Thank you for the invitation. Hi there. And hello, Astrid. Um, Walter, venture funds uh, these days are, uh, I would say, everybody's talking about uh, how to invest uh, in something and how to approach venture funds. Um, but I'm always was curious in the last years is what does it take to become a VC, an investor in life science? When I look at uh, your CV, I mean, it was, uh, you have tremendous experience in various fields. So how does it actually work to go from a PhD at the Medical University of Vienna, then uh, a few years later being one of the most famous venture investors in Europe? Well, um, Christian, I don't think that uh, I really knew what venture capital was before I actually worked in venture capital. <laughs> so it was definitely not the plan to end up in venture capital, although I have to say I'm very happy. Uh, it is a very exciting um, industry to work in. Uh, and I should also say that in life science, at least in life sciences, and you know, venture capital uh, exists more or less by industry split, right? There are technology funds, there are fintech funds that invest in the Uh, finance industry and life science funds like ours. In our field, pretty much everybody has got a PhD and some of our colleagues have an MD. So uh, everybody has one. Uh, but on the other end, of course, there are very few PhDs who end up in venture capital. And like for most of them, for me, it was coincidence. I, I was really pursuing a life science career. I was a scientist until I was at the age of 35, I think. And um, I was working at Harvard University and I met somebody uh, who worked actually for the Boston Consulting Group. And at the time I realized BCG uh, is a fantastic firm. It's the best in the field and it's an opportunity. When I got an offer, I realized it's an opportunity to learn something completely new. So uh, I was 35 and I decided to do something absolutely new to me, which I admit I had no clue about strategy consulting and a few years into strategy consulting the same thing happened again there was an opportunity to uh, work for a venture capital fund it was a very big fund they opened they did open at the time a London office so I also had the opportunity to be one of the first investors there 
So I joined that firm, Lyft Consulting, joined VC, realized that VC really is a perfect combination of science and business. Um, and ever since then, I, I have been in venture capital. Walter, we, I hear so much about venture capital, VC, and uh, what exactly is a venture fund? So a venture fund is actually not what I'm uh, employed in. Uh, a venture fund is a pooled investment vehicle. So, uh, you know, if you want to understand the details, if you want to understand how this works, we are a fund manager. We are managing funds. Um, so far, we are managing one fund, but we are about to raise our second fund. Uh, and these funds are then the vehicles that invest into startups. Uh, they, a, a fund is a, a pooled investment vehicle that allows uh, individuals to get exposure to the startup world and do this in a pooled fashion. Uh, investing into a single stock is, uh, even for us, it's just too risky. Um, I personally, you know, we all could invest into biotech stock. Uh, I think uh, I don't dare doing that. I buy the, uh, the, the index ETF uh, on the stock exchange <laughs> because I feel like investing into the life sciences, you really need to do a very deep due diligence with lots of people who have the know-how. Uh, and most investors uh, who want to have exposure to that field don't have that know-how. So what we offer to them is uh, they can buy into the pooled vehicle and we will make a number of investments. Their single investment will then be spread over a couple of uh, startups in the in the industry, uh, which uh, reduces the risk, first of all, because it's, it's a spread over several startups, and secondly, because uh, we are experts in what we are doing. Walter, I have another question to the life of a uh, venture fund and the team of a venture fund. Um When I look on the retail side, so these days, the research uh, since GameStop, I know uh, mostly happens on Reddit. So people go on uh, a chat group, exchange information, and then decide together to invest in a stock. Uh, how is the life of the team of a venture fund? Is this comparable to the life of a, a retail investor? Did you say you go a little bit on the internet and then decide what you buy? Or are there any differences, significant differences to that? Uh, so no, we are, we are um, a part of private equity. So what we do is we invest in, in, in stocks, usually, mostly. Uh, we, we invest in stocks that are not listed on any stock exchange. Those are private firms. They have been founded typically in our industry by experts in their field. They have been founded usually by, by scientists. Interestingly, if you look into more mature markets like the United States, you will see uh, repeat entrepreneurs. Um, but if you think about it that way, uh, everybody who starts in a company or almost all people who start companies in our field are very experienced in the industry before they start their first uh startup, which means they're already in their late 30s, mid 40s, maybe even 50s. Now, running such a startup takes four, five, six, 10 years. So there are very few of them are repeat entrepreneurs. Uh, most of them are first comers, and uh, at least from the founder teams. And um, so we meet them at dedicated conferences. 
And they, of course, at the places where they work, they usually know their incubators, for example. There's a network, of course, they network amongst each other. So uh, you Google the internet, they Google the internet, they find out what are the, the funds that are currently active. Um, so they find us usually uh, over the internet or through network, or we find them at dedicated conferences. Also, mixed expectations, really, when uh, founders actually approach VCs. Can you give us a little bit of an insight what the business model of a fund is? How does that work? So, um, so the business model of a fund, and again, you have to differentiate between the fund and the fund manager, right? So the business model of the fund, there is no business model because a fund is a pooled investment vehicle, as I said. So uh, the idea is that people can... Uh, uh, Can, can lower the risk of their investment by you know, investing into that pool vehicle that then in turn invests into several startups. We as fund managers, of course, we do have a business model. We have an operating company with employees and, uh, um, and, and everything that comes with that. And we, we manage these funds. We get a salary for managing the funds. And... Um, You know, the, the real upside for us is, of course, if those funds do well, because we also participate in the profit of the fund. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. And you mentioned already, you know, that um, sort of there is the business model of managing these funds so how does sort of the management company side of things operate in comparison to a normal uh, so a usual company that you would see i don't think there's much of a difference we are a service provider um, we are providing a service to two groups of uh, customers if you want to call it like that we're providing a service to investors by creating funds and by uh, allowing them to invest into an industry they don't know it mostly as much about as we do. Uh, and um, that is one part of the business, uh, building relationships with these investors. Um, that's a very long-term relationship and um, enterprise to work with them. Hopefully it's a long-term um, relationship. And then we have, uh, on the other side, we, we are looking for companies that we can invest into. And we work with these companies. Uh, first of all, we try to find the best technology that is usually and mostly a selection of the technology. So we, we review those. We, we do interviews with them. We do interviews with experts in their medical fields. Um, we uh, gather our collective knowledge in the space. Um, and then uh, based on that, we, you know, we go through several rounds of due diligence. Uh, and in the end, you know, if we decide as a team that we want to make an investment out of one of the funds, um, then we execute that investment, which is also quite a process because this private investment involves hundreds, sometimes hundreds of pages of contracts that need to be drafted, um, that need to be reviewed, that uh, need to be negotiated. So that's also part of the business. 
Yeah, my experience is also always that uh, founders forget, you know, that you're not this just this big bag of money, but that you actually also have investors as well. That, as you rightly say, you're managing the funds for, and that actually you also need to be accountable to these uh, people as well. So when you are actually doing all this due diligence, as you described, and which is quite can be quite an uh, extensive process. Then basically at the end of the day, it's also sort of the just, it forms the justification of why you made the one or the other investment decision. It, it's hard. I, I get it. It's hard for founders who uh, they have less optionality, optionality than we have, right? The founder has an idea and that idea needs to work for the founder. Maybe, you know, he has a second idea in his life. Uh, so we, of course, we see 300 to 500 investment opportunities per year and we invest into three to five of those so inherently we say for every yes we say 100 times no and um that must be tough on the startup side i get that um but not all ideas are good business models so and some of them are just better than others and you know um the better is the enemy of the good so we will pick you know the best we can we hope we pick the best and then there will be many of those. And I always tell my colleagues, you know, uh, if we look at 510 of those are success, we definitely have said at least to five of those, we have said no. So if we say no, that's not a verdict on the opportunity, right? This is just that we have at that point in time for various reasons not in, decided not to invest. Although I, I think, you know, it is worthwhile for founders um, who do this, often for the first time or only for a couple of years, um, who may not have the had the strategic exposure to what it all entails to, to run a startup, to raise funds, to, to bring a product to the market or, or to sell the product to Big Pharma. Um, it is worthwhile uh, considering what your VC counterparts tell you in terms of strategy. They may have good ideas sometimes. I definitely believe that, Walter. You're talking a lot about uh, investments in companies. When I look on the uh, at the industry, I see many players in the field. So, for example, there are pharma companies like Pfizer, like Boehringer. Uh, then we have manufacturing companies who solely focus on manufacturing products. Then we have service providers who uh, tax consultants, for example, uh, auditors. Uh, or various kinds of services that are offered uh, in exchange for money. Uh, when you talk about investment, what exactly are you looking for in a company? What does a company need that you consider it worthwhile investing in? Yeah. So I, this is now about Hayden Ventures, right? Because we, we have, like every fund, we have our own strategy. Uh, I think compared to many funds, we have a very broad strategy. Uh, it's basically any health technology in, that has, is based on life sciences. Um, but then we have also our personal preferences. Then most funds have a geographic uh, focus area, as we do. And, um, and it's a combination of those criteria. I mean, I'm, I'm, with respect to Hadian, our firm, uh, we're an expert really in, in for certain parts of Europe where the comparably little venture capital exists. This is the Nordics and Germany, Austria in particular. Uh, so there are not many other funds for whatever reason, probably historic reasons. While if you compare the scientific output of these areas, um, it's fantastic. I mean, it's absolutely world leading. What we do not have, and 
that is reflected in um, the management teams, we have not many experienced entrepreneurs or, you know, team members in startups that have done that before. They come from big pharma, they come from, from, from research, uh, but they, they don't yet, they have to learn the um, strategically, what they have to aim for strategically, and they have to learn what the various parts of their business that they are playing in now are, for example, fundraising, right? Which uh, is an experience you don't get anywhere else, but if you are an entrepreneur, I mean, I think you touched upon a very important part that basically every fund sort of has is also written in their documents that uh, they have a specific focus on what they're investing in, because this is sort of the promise that they gave to the investors who in turn invested into the fund. So let's assume a company actually did their uh, job well on uh, looking through different types of investors and then they chose you because they said, like, OK, this seems to be um, a fitting area for my company. What is sort of the documents that they would need or what should they have ready and prepared uh, when approaching you? So Astrid, uh, I'll try to answer your question. If I don't, then, uh, but I think at this point, at least in time, uh, let me, let me just to be clear, right? At this point in time, there is no excess of, of capital for startups in Europe. So the, the situation that a, an entrepreneur has the luxury of saying, you know, I want to have, have this offer or that offer, that is rare. <laughs> so my recommendation to all entrepreneurs out there with life science technologies, reach out to as many life science funds, their business is to filter. Do not filter, right? Make your, prepare your materials. It's a question, right? I'll get there. Uh, get your materials ready and, send, and try to reach everybody. You know, we depend on good ideas, we like it when we get ideas in. We have, you know, we are experienced. Sometimes we very rapidly see, you know, that's not a good idea or, um, you know, something is missing. Uh, but if it's a good idea, we will pick it out, even if the material that you submit is not perfect. In fact, you know, personally, if somebody presents this a super slick um, uh, document, then I always wonder, uh, you know, this is only marketing, right? So I, I, I prefer the documents, uh, the, 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 the PowerPoint presentation, ultimately this, right? Uh, I'd rather see that they have really done everything scientifically and in on the step to a product, you know, with all the, with all the necessary steps and the presentation material, the information material not being perfect. Um, we're not, we, 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 we don't, you know, the easier it is for us to consume, the better. Uh, but uh, the most important part is that they have, you know, dotted the I's and crossed the T's in the work, not in the presentation. Uh, but usually it's a PowerPoint presentation that, that explains the, the principle um, of, the, of, the, of, of the idea and the product that they have at the stage where they are and, and what they want to do and what they need. Well, for reaching out, I have one question. I heard so many opinions about the right timing to approach a venture capital fund. So one opinion is um, when I have only two weeks cash runway, it's uh, early enough to pick up the phone, call a VC and they get the money immediately. Other people recommend uh, talk to VCs all the time. So find out what they want, approach them and be proactive and don't 
call them only when you need money. What is your approach? Uh, is it is it annoying to you when somebody who is not actually fundraising is approaching you? Uh, do you prefer having the call uh, very close to the uh, cash out of the company? How does Halian Ventures handle this? So the short answer is, and I can say this out of personal experience, the short answer is you never stop fundraising. You're always fundraising. Uh, building it's 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 building a relationship, building trust, giving the VC. If you give the VC an opportunity to to follow you, even you know we're following companies that are too early for us. I appreciate you know when they reach out to me, when they tell me where they are. Um, I tell them very early on, you know, too early, but stay in touch. Please do that. Uh, never never lose touch uh, and keep me interested. Uh, and, you know, that's the same for us as a fund, as a fund manager. You know, we, we have a dedicated, a dedicated group of people that fosters the relationships with our investors. And in terms of due diligence, just before we, we had it just a moment ago, I mean, what are the sort of things that you're looking for when someone is approaching you? Are there any certain topics where you feel like, oh, this is really super important to me, this needs to be already solved? Or are there also topics where you say like, oh, well, we can probably talk this through together with the company and help them? Or in turn, are you a very active investor or rather more like, like do your thing and we only get involved when, when it's really problematic. So, I mean, I, I said we are a specialist for a certain region, right? And there are, and, and we very often encounter teams that are, that haven't done this before. As a consequence of that is that we are very involved, um, that we try to help uh, portfolio companies. We are always on the board. Uh, but I, I give you an example. There's one portfolio company that is very close to my heart. Uh, it's in that diagnostic space. It is a fantastic. It's a fantastic opportunity, but you know it's very difficult in that space to raise money because many funds, many life science funds, we don't do that type of uh, technology, and um, so we have reached out to sixty or seventy people out of our network, and we keep track of these. You know, this is a managing the conversation with seventy people or groups of people. That's an intensive um, piece of work, right? And that's what we have done on top of what the company is doing. So yes, we work very closely when the companies need fundraising, when the company uh, thinks about the strategy going forward, you know, what types of trial would create the best value uh, for the buck. Uh, and and so, so we, we, we prefer to be very closely involved and we like it even better if the company knows everything better than we do and we end up learning and not teaching. Walter, when I moved into the life science industry, I worked the first time for venture-backed companies. And before I was a merger acquisition in, uh, in other industries. And basically the training was um, when you build a company, you build it for eternity. So it's, it's something like uh, Jeff Bezos did with Amazon, I guess. And when I entered the industry, um, let's say it struck me like lightning because I learned a new term and this was an exit. And um, the VC started telling me at some point in time, we need to exit and sell the company. So what actually is an exit and why is it so important for VCs? Well, the reason is that we have close, closed end funds, which means that uh, our funds only have a certain period of time to get new investors into the fund. 
then the fund is closed. The fund is not traded. For most VCs, the fund is not tradable. You own these shares um, until the end of the lifetime of a fund, and then the fund has to be dissolved. This, uh, this, uh, that's the normal life cycle of a fund. In fact, uh, a normal fund, if you, you know, an off-the-shelf structure would have five years where the first five years where the fund is trying to make investments into new companies and an additional five years where this fund is co further investing into existing companies and, and then starting to uh, trying to sell these companies. And in the end, after 10 years, and sometimes it's a bit extended, at the end of that, that fund has to be completely dissolved. It, the company disappears, that the fund vehicle disappears. And for that reason, you know, you always need to have a way to, to sell the shares that the fund owns. And um, ideally, like uh, my old boss said, real VCs do m and <laughs> So ideally, you sell these shares for cash. Um, obviously, in particular in the United States, you can create lots of value by, by um, uh, putting it on a stock exchange, although an IPO uh, is not an exit, right? Because you still own the shares, only if there's enough liquidity afterwards that you can sell them, you can get rid of your shares. But that's the that's an alternative. Uh, at the end of the day, the, we have to we are obliged to return the money that our investors gave us. We are obliged to give it back. So you know, um, since you know most of these shares are not tradable, we have to give back cash, and uh, that is a deal that is clear. I, I I don't think it is surprising to entrepreneurs anymore. It was ten years ago to some entrepreneurs. Most entrepreneurs. Uh, who reach out to VCs nowadays do know that an exit is a necessity and that it's uh, not immoral to try to get as much money for your shares, for your company as possible. That's true. That's true. But let's stay a little bit at this point and maybe go a little bit back in the conversation to uh, what the company must have prepared, not at, not in terms of uh, the material that uh, it's presented to you. Let's talk a little bit about uh, in terms of uh, the investment case. How should the case of a business model look like that it becomes attractive to an investor? Because I believe there are many cases on the market that are great, that are good cases, but not really in the sweet spot of an investor. So what's your opinion on the perfect uh, development and business model that Harden Ventures is looking for? Okay, so so because we're looking into several different industries, if you differentiate between medtech, diagnostics, um, pharmaceuticals, or, or therapeutics, uh, it's not the same in each of those. But about half of what we do is in pharmaceuticals or in, in therapeutics, so maybe I focus on those. Um, we are looking, and I, I guess this is one of, of, of the things that we do different than other funds. Uh, we are looking for something that de-risks this investment compared to the industry standard. So that is something that we look at. And then it can be something very early. It can be a company creation. Uh, it can be something very late. We did a crossover. We participated in a crossover round just recently of a fund of a company that uh, then went on to have a Nasdaq IPO. And um, so we're looking for the right opportunity where we think that the risk profile and the return profile matches. Now, I know for a specific uh, listener out there that doesn't help much. Uh, it is ultimately our um, experience in the field that we know which type of technology can be sold under which circumstances at which stage. Uh, 
This is different from oncology product. If you compare oncology products to a, let's say, diabetes product, um, the paths to the market are different for um, um, a chronic disease that is not lethal, like type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes uh, versus, you know, um, with some disease that, you know, is very severe and, 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 and leads ultimately to death. So uh, it, I, there, is no, there is no principle rule for how an asset should look like. What we absolutely require, we as Hayden Ventures, is uh, that it's unique that we believe it can be sold with not at a certain stage of the development, but within a certain amount of time. And that that may be for certain assets post-phase one, from certain assets post phase two, and some assets you will have to develop until the end of phase three. It just depends on where you play. We want to deploy our money into clinical development. We do not deploy our money into research. So being close to the clinical development is you know, one, of the simple, one of the simpler guidelines that I can give to the listeners with respect to, to Hadian. We would not finance research. We do not finance lead developments or stages of, of small molecule development, like lead identification, lead development. That's not our business. We think that pharma companies are much better in doing that. How does your internal decision-making process actually look like? So what kind of steps do you need to go for internal? Because as Christian mentioned before, there are sometimes expectations that, oh, I need money in two weeks and it will miraculously appear when I start you know, talking to VCs. But that process actually takes a while. So what, how does it look like at Hadian? Yeah. So a due diligence is a, um, it is a structured process in our firm, yet it is to some extent informal. We, we, we start getting an uh, initial, usually a PowerPoint deck. We look at that and, you know, many of the opportunities we can exclude for various reasons by, you know, looking at the data that's disclosed in that non-confidential deck uh, or because other, other factors. Um, and if we like it, um, we collect enough data. This may be the data that's in the presentation or it may be data that we then collect with calls or interactions with the founders uh, for a first review. Uh, if, uh, in our in our firm, uh, everybody in the firm. So we are a team of I think ten investors, investment professionals, eight to ten. Uh, everybody is in every meeting, um, and every company is discussed. Uh, we have a champion. Um, usually, the distribution of the deals happens coincidentally, or people find them find them and think I want to pursue this. So there has to be somebody on our side that really wants to do that, um, and then that person presents a, you know an internal presentation where they explain it in our language to us and it goes through that first what we call a pre-screen and um, internally we decide then whether or not you know we want to keep it a pre-screen and there's more information or we make it a so-called B proposal that's you know an internal lingo but it basically means this is a company that we think could have uh, could become an investment opportunity um, and at that stage, it stays usually for several presentations and rounds. So a long, usually an hour to two hours presentation uh, of the champion. Uh, lots of questions, challenging questions. Um, we are a curious team. Um, so we want to know. And, um, um, and, and then that person goes back and answers these questions and finds out more things, presents those. Of course, there's a certain list of things that you always do. You always look at the regulatory environment. Uh, you always look at the 
uh, CMCs or the manufacturing of the of the product, uh, very different for a small molecule than a biologic. And um, the, the 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 so-called preclinical package, preclinical clinical talks, um, different requirements for different types of of, of indications. Um, so that person, the champion, is going through several rounds of with the person. Usually, it's Wednesday morning. The meetings take forever, um, and that person presents, takes home more questions, and then goes back for another week or two to answer these questions and comes back with the answers. At some point, we usually. But Corona has changed things. We always had the management team come over at a certain stage and present. Usually our team at that stage already was kind of informed, the whole team. Uh, and it was more of a, you know, fine, learning more about the people, but also about the asset. Uh, and then we would start negotiating a term sheet. Um, and that usually comes in various forms that, you know, depending on the situation that can be a very short form or it can be a very long form. We decide internally what we think strategically makes more sense. Um, and we make evaluation. We make a very comprehensive evaluation. It's a so-called uh, risk uh, adjusted scenario NPV that we build. Uh, and um, we check, you know, with the expectations of the company and what our models tell us whether or not it makes sense. And that's our evaluation proposal. And uh, we negotiate the term sheet. If that comes to a conclusion, then uh, usually sign the term sheet uh, and you move on to contracting where a law firm is hired to, uh, to develop the contracts. Um, and that usually that at that stage, we also do a legal due diligence. We, you know, we, have a law firm look at all the employment contracts. Are there any risks? Are there any, are, has the company pledged any of the, uh, any of the assets to somebody else? Um, think, do they own the asset? Have they paid the IP fees? Things like that. So legal due diligence. We also do an IP due diligence. Uh, and um, hopefully that leads to contract signing and um, the wiring of the money. <laughs> what are the most common pitfalls that a, a deal would actually not go through? That the asset isn't uh, is that we think the risk profile of the asset uh, is not uh, what we originally thought it was. It does sometimes happen that we can't get the syndicate together. Uh, I, I should I, I think I wanted to say this earlier. So um, in Europe, there is not enough capital for startups, in particular in the life sciences. So these are not competitive. Um, there's not too much money, which basically means it's a good thing because um, when we like a deal, we will help the company to raise money from others and other funds that have worked with us know us and it really gets the company um, much further if we have, for example, given them a term sheet. It's much easier to raise money once you have you know, the first couple millions from a, uh, from a VC that then looks for a syndication partner. Um, and multiple VCs for the company means security for follow-on for follow-on funds. Hardly around is the last round. Most of the cases around leads to another investment round. That's a good point that you mentioned uh, syndication, and uh, it really—I mean, I, I went through this process from the company side uh, multiple times. So it's really true. Once you have the first term sheet on the table from a serious investor. Um, things become much easier. 
Uh, I completely agree to what you say that uh, capital is scarce. There are many opportunities on the market in Europe, but not enough capital to fund these opportunities, especially in drug development, um, which makes fundraising quite interesting from the corporate side. Uh, you recently founded Hardian Ventures yourself. And um, I'm curious, uh, how is the process of starting a venture fund? Is it similar to starting a company or is it much easier for venture funds that you just say wants to have a fund and the money flies to you through the window? <laughs> um, I, I would like to say it's much more difficult. <laughs> But the reason being that differentiating in a service business is much harder than differentiating with the technology. Right? Technology may be differentiated or not. Uh, that's, that's a property of the technology. Uh, it is much harder to argue to, to an investor. And, you know, founding a fund manager that, or the fund that associated with that fund manager, um, that means we go out and we went out for one and a half years, you know, without a salary, um, trying to get to a first close for our fund, number one. And uh, we had plans doing this many years before we actually started. So I remember the first time my, my partner and I sat together uh, was in a small pizzeria in London in, I think, 2012. And uh, we started fundraising in 2016 and early and December 2017, we had a first close. And we kept fundraising for fund number one for another one and a half years. So um That 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 was in a, in a way, you know. I think it is harder than a startup because we don't have a technology. We just have, you know, our pretty faces <laughs> and our convincing story. Um, we don't have a track record if you don't have fun if you're not fundraising for fund four or five, right? We have our track record in our previous firm, but um, there's always a much harder proposition for LPs. So our our investors, we call them LPs, right? It's much harder for them. Uh, because we don't have this asset that they can do their due diligence on. It's us as a team, and we have to be credible that we can what we promise them. So what is your USP over other uh, sort of funds in this space in the life? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host Matt Heslin brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Uh, so, I mean, besides the fact that we have an excellent team, um, in particular, my colleagues, uh, You know, we, we had the opportunity to pick the best from our previous firm who were interested enough to working with us. <laughs> uh, so uh, we are not uh, first-time investors, right? Uh, it, we, we, have we are differentiating us in, 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 in a way that we are uh, focusing on regions where fewer venture funds are present and that we are very much risk 
driven. So we, we do not want some funds you you hear say, look, it's not a new mode of action. It's a new, not a new modality. Uh, maybe the IP has a weakness here. We just don't do that. We try to make this work and if work if we think that there is a substantially lowered risk in the development process of that asset for whatever reasons. So that's that's I think what we do differently than others. So looking for these opportunities where we think you know the risk actually is much lower than if you just look at the average success rates of uh, of drugs in that space. So after closing the first fund, your faces are still pretty. You have uh, a larger team right now. And uh, what I got from the industry, you also got your first successes in, like uh, Demis Bioscience, for example. Um, and now you're in the process uh, to raise another fund. So I'm uh, still curious on uh, how that works for funds. Um, you have a better track record than raising your first fund. And also, I think the corona crisis, when it comes to money deployed into life science, has become much better probably uh, since uh, 2016 and 2017. How is your experience during the fundraising process for a new fund? Are my assumptions right? Or uh, am I, let's say, um, probably a little bit um, too positive on the on the capital situation in Europe? So uh, frankly, I, I cannot tell you. And, and the reason is the following. As a fund number one, you have no follow-on investors. You go with the people that you know, you've never met before. Uh, and um, that is still the case. If you are out there as a new venture team, you have fund number one. You need to get um, these, these investors. Fund number ones are often actually better performing than others. Uh, so that happens, that, but most investors will say um, we don't do a first-time fund team. Now we are out fundraising number two because uh, we are only we started thinking about fund two only three years into fund number one. Usually you wait for five years, and the reason was that our investors asked us to do that. So our investors asked us, "When are you going to start fundraising fund number two?" So. Fund number two, the fundraising currently only uh, is within the existing investors, which uh, have uh, the first offer. Um, and we will get, um, uh, the future is always uncertain, but uh, the way it looks like we'll get to a first close uh, with only existing investors. Um, we will then ask a, a certain group of external investors um, to, to come along if they want to. Uh, but that will only happen after we have done our first close. I mean, look, we never say no, right? But uh, we we think the uh, the best way to go about it is to demonstrate that our in existing investors have a strong interest after being in fund number one to come along in fund number two. Um, and that should happen within the next uh, two or so months. And then, as I said, then we'll reach out to a broader audience um, and, you know, we see if we can get, get some new investors in our um, into our fund number two. So is fund one uh, number one already fully deployed? So is it fully invested already? No, you never deploy. <laughs> uh, um, at the end of the investment period, right, which is the five, yeah. first five years, you still have to reserve a lot of money for follow-up investments into the companies. Um, so no, it's not fully deployed. There's sufficient capital for our program. We have room for one or two more companies. We are closing right now. I think we're about to sign contracts for one more investment and um, that will bring our portfolio is it 11 or 12 now I forget 
Um, and then we have sufficient capital for these companies um, to keep investing into these, but we will not invest into new companies once we have fund number two. Then fund number one in terms of building up the portfolio is done. Um, there's also no way to get into fund number one anymore, right? As a new investor, you can come into fund number two. And, um, and then we start uh, investing into new companies, which we already have built up in our pipeline um, out of fund number two. But no, the capital is not deployed. There's sufficient capital for, for um, follow-on investments. That's uh, that's good to know. So you're basically still looking for companies. Uh, I wonder what's the best way to to reach out to the team of Hardian Ventures. Is it just a LinkedIn message or is it going to a conference? What way of communication for the first contact do you prefer? So uh, I have to say I didn't check, uh, but last time I checked our email addresses were on our website. <laughs> So it is very easy. You, you Google my name, um, you'll find my email address. Send me an email. Um, send it to anybody in our team. Maybe even better to some, you know, um, some of the, uh, um, yeah, any, you know, we distribute it internally. It doesn't matter who you send it to. We make sure it put, it's put in, into a pipeline. And usually, actually, the person who receives it has a very quick look at it and says, mm, I need to prioritize or not. Um, then it goes into a, into a, a pipeline. Um, it will be um, if it isn't already taken by somebody. Uh, somebody will it will be assigned to somebody, and that person then um, should do this within a certain period of time. Should have a first look. Having said that, you know nagging always helps. So, What's your average ticket size actually? Uh, the ticket size. Um, so we uh, we said we, we want to allocate over multiple rounds um, out of fund one about eight million euros for a single portfolio company. Uh, out of fund number two, let's see. We hope that uh, the, the the size of fund number two is going to be a little bigger than fund number one. So the ticket size will probably increase. Um, the number of portfolio companies is probably not increasing so much because there's only you know. If we would do that, um, that means uh, you'd have to substantially increase the team because we work so so in, with such an intensity with with the uh, with our portfolio companies that uh, you cannot handle more than you know a certain number per senior person in the team. So same same amount of companies, um, probably a bit higher uh, allocation per company over several rounds, and we we can do you know, a very small round, which would for us be 500,000 as a first ticket or a bigger round, which is 3 million at the first, as a first investment. But it almost always comes in multiple investments. So, so is it also tied to certain milestones that a company would achieve? Is there also a mechanism that you have in there or you just committed full at the beginning said like, no, okay, we'll deploy it over you know, several months or whatever is the time period, uh, regardless of any kind of milestones in between? No, absolutely. Um, we do not commit the full amount without the company achieving certain milestones. It can be committed, but that commitment then depends on them having a very clearly defined set of achievements um, within a certain period of time. So usually the money comes with milestones that need to be met for the next investment round. Walter, one final question from, from my end. 
Um, we had a time when we could meet in person and let's just uh, assume that it happens again in the future, that there will be conferences. And let's just uh, think about the situation that's typical to, for example, BioEurope, that uh, you pump into a life science entrepreneur. Uh, you are in a hurry to the next meeting because you have a full back-to-back uh, -back, uh, schedule already planned. And the life science entrepreneur asks you just one question and say, uh, please spare me one minute and give me one advice. What is the most important thing that I need to consider if I want to create a successful life science company? What's your opinion? Well, it it uh, um, it has to be the right asset, <laughs> and um, you have to have the right strategy. It's a combination of asset and strategy. And as an, an entrepreneur, um, the investor is your friend, not your enemy. If the, I mean, I'm not saying that everybody's a good person, right, on our side of the table. But uh, usually, uh, we 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 have no interest in uh, in in the entrepreneur not being successful. So um, we usually we, we pull uh, on the same string. Walter, many thanks uh, for your time, for the talk. It was very insightful and I'm very happy uh, to see you. I wish you all the best in raising and closing your second fund and also all the best to your team. Thank you very much, Astrid. Thanks a lot. Christian. Have a great day. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Please, please share the podcast and make sure you've subscribed. Have a great day. Mm -hmm.